0: Listener production. And William and I made a made a pact, made a deal that no matter what, we would never let our officers fight against each other, each other. You think he broke that pact? Yes. No. His the people that he employed broke that pact. Yes, as you'll be well aware, the world's most famous brothers are having a very painful and public. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're going to learn what birth order theory tells us about the rift between Harry and William. William is the perfect firstborn.
1: His life path was laid out for him. It was ordained. You know, his upbringing,
0: education, career paths were designed to prepare him for the crown. Yes, and it was a very different role for the spare, Harry. So we're going to look into the psychology of sibling rivalry applied to the royals. That is our briefing in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines. It is January 12, and I'm joined by Rihanna Patrick, who's been bringing you some great briefing episodes over summer, including that episode, Santa School, Rihanna, which has been one of our most popular of the whole year last year.
2: Oh, it was an absolutely fantastic doco, which I think just really shed a light on the things that US Santas that do this professionally were thinking about. Mm. Um, so yeah, I got I got blown away by that. And I think really only an Australian director could have brought that story to the world.
0: Yeah, right. Go and check that episode if you haven't heard it yet. Now, let's get into today's headlines.
2: A service for Cardinal George Pell will be held in Rome in the next two days after he died yesterday at the age of 81 due to heart complications following hip surgery. His body will be repatriated and buried in the crypt under St. Mary's Cathedral in Sydney. For many people, particularly of the Catholic faith, this will be a difficult day. And I express my condolences to all those who are mourning. It's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there. Pell was the Archbishop of Melbourne and then Sydney before he was put in charge of the Vatican's finances between 2014 and 2019. And that made him the third most powerful person in the entire Catholic Church.
0: Yeah, and so that was the rise of George Pell. But then uh, he was convicted, jailed, and later acquitted of child sexual abuse, which he had always denied. So he famously came back from Rome to face those charges. Uh, When he was convicted, he went to jail and then was released after that acquittal. And before that, the Child Abuse Royal Commission had found that George Pell knew of other clergy molesting children in the 70s, but didn't take adequate action to address it. So A very controversial legacy, um, Rihanna, and it's still ongoing. There's the father of a former altar boy still pursuing uh, George Pell in a civil case. And a fight between two of Australia's richest men has led to the downfall of an important renewables project. So the Aussie billionaires Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest have fallen out over the $30 billion Sun Cable project which is that giant solar farm in the northern territory which was going to export power via a huge cable under the sea to Indonesia and Singapore. So yesterday the news came out the sun cable has entered voluntary administration it was burning through a lot of money and missing agreed targets. So pretty interesting and, and disappointing, round of this one.
2: Yeah, and I think it could have been the future of where solar could go. And I mean, this project did manage to raise $250 million last year from investors who were interested in the project. And Suncable will continue to operate, but it will be seeking new financial support. And as you heard there, there were a lot of issues, but there was also one shareholder who couldn't agree with the company's funding structure. And so that's when the board was left with no option but to enter into this voluntary administration.
0: Well, yeah, both of these billionaires, Forrest and Cannon Brooks, say they still support the project. So there's now speculation that one of them will buy it outright, or at least a big chunk of it, um, potentially with a, a consortium of investors, but they definitely won't be working together anymore. So it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall when those two were arguing about the merits of this project.
2: And Kate Blanchett has won a Golden Globe for her performance in Tar. She was the only Aussie to win. Margot Robbie, Elizabeth Debicki, Hugh Jackman and director Baz Luhrmann all missing out.
0: So, yeah, disappointing for those Aussie filmmakers and actors. Uh, The TV show White Lotus and the films The Banshees of Inner Sharon and The Fablemans um, took out the majority of awards. So, Rihanna, this was the first year back on TV because last year the broadcaster pulled out because of concerns around diversity. So, how did it go?
2: Yeah, Tom, there were some definite notables not there. Brendan Fraser wasn't there for The Whale, which he was nominated Best Actor in a Motion Picture and stayed at home and he'd said um early on that he wasn't going to go because it would be hypocritical of him to participate. Um and he of course publicly accused a former Hollywood uh foreign press president of uh sexual assault. That was um Phil Burke, who has always denied that, uh, those claims, claiming that he was joking. Uh, Tom Cruise uh, also snubbed the awards and um, the scandal last year, which was not only around diversity but also around uh, some of the ethics of the Hollywood foreign press. And um, Tom Cruise handed back three of his Golden Globes and he was up for Best Picture with Top Gun Maverick. And, I mean, you know, since um, all of the backlash from last year, there are now sort of two new dozen um, Asian-American and African-American members which they have been recruiting in the last 20 months to make sure that they have diversity in their judging ranks. Um, They've also banned uh, members uh, receiving gifts. Um, So there was this big culture of where you could buy gifts for a lot of these members of the Hollywood foreign press, which looked as though they would then favour your movie. So now they've sort of banned the giving of that. And, um, you know, it also feels like, um, in a way, Tom, that this organisation is playing a bit of catch-up because, um, again, there was a mixed bag when it came to nominations this year in terms of diversity. And then the next thing you know, they're announcing that Eddie Murphy is the Cecil um, Mill Award winner. And, you know, while he very much deserves being acknowledged. I think it did look like they were trying to save face when some of those big African-American um, films, such as Till and Emancipation, um, were nowhere to be seen in those nominations. So yeah, it's. I, I think that there's still a lot of Hollywood that really haven't come back to the table um, after everything that happened
0: last year. Yeah, well, it sounds like it might be a, a sort of a multi-year process to bring about the change that's needed. And I guess bring the whole industry together so this can be a a unifying award ceremony rather than a a divisive one. All right, well, we'll catch you tomorrow on The Briefing, Rihanna, Antoinette Latouf's about to join me as we look at the birth order theory um, interpretation of Harry and William's public feud. So Antoinette, we're about to have a look at what birth order theory tells us about the big public fallout between Harry and William. Where do you fit in the birth order in your family?
3: I am 5th of 7, and I am yet to come across any popular research or theory that tells me what the hell I'm about. Um because I just don't think people have 7 kids anymore and I'm kind of somewhere down the bottom. I'm trying to, you know, make my own way. It's probably why I've always been like so opinionated and such a Mm. fighter because I reckon I had to be screamed to be heard.
0: Yeah, you had to fight for oxygen, right, in a family that big.
3: Yep, the final slice of pizza, a seat at the table, everything. What about you?
0: I am the first of four boys and I guess we'll find out more as we do this interview with Michael Gross but I I think I more or less fit the stereotype of an eldest child.
3: Well, yeah, the eldest child is like the responsible one who's apparently meant to rule the world.
0: Mm. Well, we'll find out... um, if Prince William fits that role, I dare say he does.
3: Michael Gross is a parenting expert and the author of nine parenting books, including Why Firstborns Rule the World. Thanks for joining us, Michael. So the heir and the spare is something that surfaced from Harry's memoir. and. Like, I'm interested, like, is this dynamic an, you know, an exclusively royal one or are there similar dynamics in regular families where the firstborn is seen as particularly special?
1: You know, following a family superstar is always problematic. But when the eldest child carries the Mountbatten wins the surname, it's always going to be hard. So that dynamic plays out all the time. So the firstborn and the secondborn are different. But if the firstborn is something special in a special position, then it makes it even harder for the second one. So yeah, a lot of families would experience a similar sort of dynamic. It's just magnified or on steroids in the royal family because of Mm. who they are, because of the the press that they get as well, the media attention, obviously.
3: I'm interested in unpacking that dynamic a little further. Is it just the romance for the parents in, in having their first child, the much greater attention that's available when there's only one child in the home?
1: Yeah, all of that. Basically, parents cut their teeth on the firstborn, and the firstborn has huge expectations on their shoulders. Firstborns live with pressure. They get lots of attention. They also get lots of pressure. But they also get all parental resources, and that's always been the way of things. So we want our, our families to live on, so we always put the resources into the firstborn because there might not be any more kids Also, the simple fact that the firstborns often have always got the family farm or, you know, the the enterprise. So the firstborns are, they're in a very special position. And unfortunately, the second one is born and they come in and they're the victims of, of bad timing. And particularly if they're a similar gender, then firstborns tend to be what we call the family conservatives. And a family conservative basically is, if it's an academic family, fair chance the firstborn will be an academic. And the second one comes in, looks at the first one and goes, gosh. You've got all these areas all sewn up. Well, where am I going to go? And um, firstborns tend to be a little bit more dour, a little bit more conscientious. And William is the perfect firstborn. His life path was laid out for him. It was ordained you know his upbringing education career paths were designed to prepare him for the crown and for poor old harry um it's far less certain and that's very often the same case with all the second borns as well that mum and dad's you know wants the first to be the academic or want them to be the tradie like me and the second one will often look at the first as i said and they'll go you've got this place taken well, I'll i'll go in a different path and do things quite differently
0: Yeah, but we don't know as much about William's trauma because he's not speaking publicly about it. He is following the more traditional, you know, don't complain, don't explain sort of mantra of the royal family. So we don't know what pain or compromise he's had to make in those choices he's made to follow a more conventional path, whereas Harry is speaking a lot more openly about it. Again, that reflects that different kind of way of dealing with things and the different personality traits. So do you think maybe William does have his own pain and some of these choices haven't been easy. You know, maybe Kate wasn't his ideal partner, but he compromised to suit the family. Yeah.
1: Trauma plays out in different ways with kids and adolescents and adults. And one way it plays out is is by, in some ways, acting out, which is in some ways, Harry. And to a degree, that's a relatively healthy thing. And trauma also can be masked. We, we we hold it in. It always sort of comes out at some stage of life, maybe 40, 50 years later. We don't know what william was was feeling and what happened with him uh and he could be playing this whole thing out by holding it all in staying the line the family line and it's quite easy in some way because it masks things A life's very simple because it's step by step by step by step by step i've just got to stay within those rules and those boundaries and things don't leak out but i suspect there is some trauma there but we just don't see it in some way as we do with harry
3: I'm keen to talk about sibling rivalry. Obviously, the global attention is on Mm. these feuding siblings. Um, But just more broadly, like what exactly is it? Uh, And when does it become something that you just kind of don't grow out of and move on from?
1: Rivalry has a negative connotation, can be very healthy as well. Mm. Um, It's one of the ways which Kids in a family teach each other, and it's one of the ways that they get better. You know, I want to be better, with my brother, I want to be better, with my sister. So, that notion of, of rivalry is a little bit like I, I look at them like puppies, where they fight with each other and scratch with each, each other. But that's one of the ways that they learn to, to survive outside the family sort of jungle, so to speak. So, there are some healthy aspects. It becomes unhealthy when you don't repair things, you put the other person down, you don't stop the rivalry. Um, jealousy continues all all the time, and I suspect that that's gotten to this case now.
3: Do you think William and Harry will ever be able to fix this sibling relationship?
1: It will depend on William, I think, being the oldest and being the sibling in some ways who's been most hurt. So it's very easy for Harry to be on the attack, so to speak. To keep speaking, but William, on the other hand, is sitting there, and 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 he's the one who's who's on the receiving end, and his partner's on the receiving end, and his father's on the receiving end. So it depends a lot on on William um, to being bigger than everything that we're seeing, and to reach out. Um, I can see that that Harry will will sort of is, has dug himself into a hole and when you dig yourself into a hole it's often hard to get out of it but you need someone else to help you to get out of that and that person will, will be William. So hopefully as he as he reaches in, in his 50s, uh, he's at an interesting stage and in age of, of life stage as well where he's making his own way and to some ways the what Harry's doing is threatening his pathway and things will become clearer to him. In his 50s as they do for many people so hopefully at that particular stage which sounds a long way off but it'll come pretty quickly um that that will be healed and that riff will be healed although there are some issues around the royal family and i thought it was beautifully articulated although i don't think harry meant it but the articulation of saying this is an institution not a family to me says a hell of a lot families forgive each other but institutions with other people involved are quite different so family if if it's just family yeah family get on with each other and they'll forgive each other but if it's the institution which takes over it's going to be difficult
0: so you're saying that it'll, it'll be william's response that will really determine whether they can piece this relationship back together what do you think william will have to do if that is the case he's going to have to present an olive branch himself He's
1: gonna to have to reach out to him, I guess privately, obviously. Um hmm. and he's got to admit his mistakes as well. Harry, I think, has got no trouble admitting his m- mistakes, but it's very difficult. So one of the you know, it's very difficult for in that royal family, I think, to to admit that, gee, I did that wrong. So it's for him to reach out and go, you know, Mark, you know what? I, I I was wrong there. You were right with that, what you said about whatever it was, Kate or, or whatever. So he needs to actually show his humanity in some ways and, and seek some forgiveness as well.
0: Okay, so there's an elephant in the room here, which is Megan, the partner. Mm-hmm. So what, what role do partners often play in solving <laughs> or exacerbating problems between siblings? If you've got a good strong partner
1: who understands where you come from and sees a bigger picture and the bigger picture in this case should be the five letter word called family. And we've got to sort of get together as a family. Well, often partners take the place of a of a mother, so or a father. And I think Megan in some ways has taken that place. So she needs to encourage him, put her ego aside, and encourage him to reach out. And also on the other side of it, Kate too needs to sort of pull right back and encourage her partner to
0: be more forgiving. So Michael, what about King Charles's role in this relationship breakdown between Harry and William? Is this a failure on his part? And how important is the role of parents in influencing sibling dynamics? The short answer to that
1: is that, yes, <laughs> parents do play an important part in sibling dynamics and family dynamics. But in another way, the relationship is up to the kids in functioning families, what tends to happen is, you know, let's let's go back and have a look at kids in a in a family when they're younger. You've got mum and dad who will be um, setting the rules, and you know their management style may may be different. But if you've got two or three kids in the family, they'll they'll often solve their own problems. They'll get on. They'll almost be a subculture within them. However, as kids get older and as they move into adolescence and into adulthood, what often kids will do is they want their parents to be the conduit to relationships, and part of the role. That actually to say no you you sort this out with your brother or sister so what's the role of charles in this place the charles the role of charles is is to encourage both his kids to bury the hatchet and you know and do it in small ways and how do we how do we re-engage in relationships it's usually in small ways it's never it takes a long long period of time but you need goodwill, you need good heart and i guess you do need people around them of authority who are going to encourage that and allow that to happen
3: That was Michael Gross, a parenting expert and author of seven parenting books, including uh, The Firstborn Rules the World.
0: Yeah, so Michael's explanation confirmed that me and my brothers basically do fit those classic birth order stereotypes, but I think that doesn't have to drive you apart like it has in the case of William and and Harry. I actually think those different personality traits, those different roles can actually complement each other. And I also think that parents have a big role to play. And I think Charles has a lot to answer for here. I think he's been really missing in action in supporting and helping his boys reconcile.
3: Look, I think these birth theories are certainly interesting, probably ring true for a lot of normal or more regular families. But the thing with the royal family is they're as much an institution as they are a family, and it's hard to know where the family begins and ends and when the institution takes over. And and for Harry wanting to be the one who changes the world, well I reckon he wants to change the institution. Um, and mm. you know the institution in many ways is problematic. It is colonial and, and racist and historically sexist. So I'm not sure that this is simply going to be a case of siblings repenting pairing because, you know, the big elephant is in the room is the institution, which is the monarchy.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the thing is growing up in an institution like that, it's going to be a lot more suitable for the traits of the firstborn. So, you know, the secondborn mm. or the youngest is basically born in, onto a collision course. If they're going to mm-hmm. be rebellious, there's an institution to rebel against. So it's always going to be a more difficult fit.
3: Yep, and I reckon my prediction is they will never repair that relationship.
0: I hope you're wrong, but I think you're probably right. Listener.